Good morning and welcome to episode 60 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus in Long Beach, California. I'm Sam Miller. I'm here with Ben Lindbergh in New York, New York, who is um, still has not slept after last night's Yankee game. Uh, is that correct? I did not sleep the previous night either. Goodness gracious. And so tell me about this train ride you had to Brooklyn. Uh, I left Yankee Stadium about, I don't know, uh, I texted you, I was leaving or emailed you about midnight or so uh, after doing the clubhouse thing. And then it's a pretty short trip from there to my apartment, but not short enough uh, last night. And I dozed off at some point during the trip and took an unscheduled detour to Brooklyn, uh, which was not on the way from the Bronx to Manhattan. So uh, I ended up in, in Brooklyn at two in the morning or so and had to come back and sharing a subway car with some interesting characters. There's going to be a video of you on YouTube of a rat climbing on your face. <laughs> yeah, I'm lucky uh, no one took my recorder pen or anything that I had on me. Anyway, um, we're going to talk about um, just two series today. We're going to talk about primarily the Yankees game. Uh, I think, and uh, somewhat a uh, little bit about the Nationals game. I presume that tomorrow we'll be talking a great deal about the Giants, Reds, and A's, Tigers, as both of those games will be decided today in an epic day of baseball. So we're, I think, going to just skip them today. So um, you were in New York. You were in the stadium yesterday mm-hmm. for Raul Ibanez, um perhaps uh, greatest game anybody in history has ever had. <laughs> Um, what was it like? Uh, it was exciting. It was sort of a slow, quiet game up until, really up until his first home run. There wasn't a whole lot to get excited about. There weren't a whole lot of hits. There weren't a whole lot of hard hit balls, uh, at least on the Yankees side. Um, and obviously it, uh, it all changed with that home run and, and, with the second home run, and as I wrote in the article that I wrote about it, um, there was quite a bit of excitement, even, I felt, among the other writers, not in a partisan way, but in a, hey, we just saw a pretty incredible game way. Um, so it was fun. Um Obviously, Abanez is. Uh, there's a lot about his story that's great. He's a, a very late bloomer in his career. He's, uh, by all accounts, a very nice guy. He's had some uh, some great career spikes, and now he has this amazing game. But um, probably the th- the thing that more people are going to be talking about today is um, the man he replaced. Uh, Rodriguez was over three yesterday with two strikeouts before he was pinch hit for was there much booing of him was there um, did you get the sense that um, that this was kind of an inevitability that this was going to have to come to a head this series uh, there was booing um, I mean of course it could have not come to a head if he had just had a good game at some point um, it seemed like Girardi was kind of committed to sticking with him and not giving into the the public pressure at least to move him down in the lineup or take him out of the lineup entirely. Um, he he supported him really in his pregame press conference yesterday and of course started him uh, without moving him down in the lineup or anything. But he 
explain that uh, it just kind of occurred to him in the seventh inning that things might line up this way in the ninth. Uh, and he liked the idea, I guess. Um, it wasn't really a planned thing so much, although he did say before that it was nice to have Ibanez on the bench to come out, uh, to come off the bench in a, a potential situation like that. But I think he was committed to sticking with A-Rod for the most part, um, and maybe it did have something to do with those first three at-bats where he continued to look pretty lost. Uh, and I'm, I always wonder what to conclude about that because, I mean, the studies will show that there's really no way to tell when a hitter is about to become cold or about to become hot. Um, uh, you know, a hitter who has been hot recently is is no more likely to continue to be hot, it seems like, as someone who, you know, hasn't been. Um, and so you wonder whether the fact that a, a guy looks bad in one at-bat means that he'll look bad in the next at-bat. Um I don't know. Maybe the the stats say you can't tell, but you'd think that's the sort of thing that a manager or a coaching staff could tell, or at least that's what they're there for, partially. Yeah, I mean, it really is the case that um, we probably judge managers a bit more harshly than they deserve when they make these decisions based on the sorts of uh, small samples or um, niche splits or um, you know hot cold stats or uh, matchup uh, records because um, it is very easy for us to say that um, the odds are that it is statistical noise and that the odds are it's not a great move. Um, but I just think that anybody who's ever um, had to make decisions in their own lives knows how difficult it is to take emotion out of it completely and trust um, trust in the cold hearth, hard uh, you know the cold hard arc of math. Um, and you can certainly see why a manager would um, would just get tired of watching things fail um, and and get tired of waiting for them to correct themselves. And um, as you sort of allude to in your recap of it as well, um, there is a um, there is a sort of a truth to to gut, uh, I think, when we're talking about true experts. I mean, uh, I, I don't know that I totally want to lean on Malcolm Gladwell's work, but I mean, I he, thought of that he, when I was writing it. Yeah, he wrote an entire book about the um, the the value of um, of of instinct when it is coming from a, a true expert. And um, you talked about how Joe Girardi attributed this t- decision to his gut, his gut, his gut, his gut, his gut, and his stomach um, and his heart, and, and his stomach and his heart. But the um, but but there was a truth to to his decision as well. And um, when you uh, you know, he could have just as easily, easily perhaps uh, credited his binder. But when you look at what Raul Ubanez and what Jim Johnson's strengths are, and when you look at what the ballpark was was uh, playing like, and when you look at um, the things that A-Rod does poorly and, and all those sorts of things, there, there really is a, a pretty good case to be made um, for the decision he made. Um, now, of course, the Brian Mattis Homer was completely bananas and un- <laughs> unpredictable. So maybe it, once you conclude that baseball is simply um, mind-blowingly unpredictable, it's hard to give anybody credit for anything mm-hmm. that they do. Um, but I guess the question, the bigger question, is um, what was the difference between uh, Johnson and Gonzalez? Why was Abanez not starting this game? Yeah, I don't know. 
that's uh, that's a good question. I don't know. He, uh, I don't think he really explained that. Um, I mean, unless it did have to do with those three at bats, if he thought that there was something especially worrisome about them, um, then I guess he could have changed his mind mid-game. But I don't know. Um, that is a valid question to ask, though, certainly. So some uh, Miguel Gonzalez is another very good story. Um, he was 28. He made his major league debut this year. He journeyed through Mexico um, as a in his in his mid 20s, trying to recover his career. And um, there's something about uh, his success, I think, this season and A Rod's success that, um, or sorry, A Rod's struggles that is really interesting as far as. Um, as far as kind of which team you're on, Gonzalez is a um, is would probably have never gotten this chance if he had been on a team like the Yankees. I don't think that he would be in the starting rotation, the playoff rotation for very many teams. But he happened to land on an Orioles team where uh, there aren't a lot of other great options, and he was able to to get this chance. Yeah, no, actually, it, if I can interrupt for a second, I read something recently that. Dan Duquette said that he felt that was a strength of the organization, that they could offer those kinds of opportunities to people. Um, And that that was, I mean, usually you would think of a kind of a a bad team or a team without many stable contributors, you'd think they'd have a tougher time attracting people. But he seemed to think that he felt it was an advantage that he could say, hey, come join us and you will probably play at some point. Uh, yeah. Continue. Yeah. Uh, well, that's yes, exactly. And then A Rod, conversely, um, is not actually a bad baseball player. He um, <laughs> he's he's a he's a little bit better. He's a bit above average for a third baseman as a hitter, uh, even this year, even in his uh, in in a year that is his new career low. Um, and yet, in the Yankees lineup, he has the second worst OPS. You, I mean, everybody was talking about moving him down to seventh, but you could make the case he should be eighth. And if you look at Russell Martin's last uh, two months, you could maybe even make the case that you would be more confident with Martin coming up right now, although I probably wouldn't make that case. And so A-Rod on a lot of teams would be a perfectly legitimate third or fifth hitter, and nobody would say anything of it. Um, but he just happens to be playing on this team where uh, the the standard is so high that he looks terrible in retrospect. He does, and I mean, he's not really the worst hitter so far on the team, or at least not by any great degree. I mean, Curtis Granderson is not hitting. Nick Swisher is not hitting. Um, for some reason, they just don't inspire the same booze or the same notice. Uh I don't know what it is. I mean, even even as someone who likes A Rod, and and I feel like A Rod is probably the the best player I've I've ever watched on a regular basis. Um, and I don't think there's anything to the the unclutch uh, opinion. Still, I have to admit that he looks really bad when he's when he's in one of these funks, which have happened to coincide with playoff appearances a few times um, and so you you consider this a funk you don't consider this slow bat speed and a oh well career and uh, i mean i think right now he's i don't think he's as bad as uh as he looks right now he's not a guy who's gonna hit 83 with uh you know a strikeout every other at bat um but i i definitely do think it's 
different as I wrote from several years ago when he was struggling then it was uh, I think I don't think there was really an argument to be made that that you should move him down or take him out of the lineup or anything like that because his performance had just been so strong he was a two-time MVP I mean just in recent years um, but now he's he's clearly uh, declined so even though he's he's not as bad as this, and and I agree that he's probably an above average hitter, um, it it definitely starts to get to the point where you can argue in favor of replacing Alex Rodriguez with a forty year old Raul Ibanez, and then it makes some sense. So I've got three final questions for you. They're all predictions, so we're gonna look stupid on all of them, but um, I think they're three fun questions. Um, Alex Rodriguez has five years left with the Yankees. Um, so I want to know my three questions. One, how many home runs does he hit in those five years? Two, uh, is where, what will the fifth year be? Will he be in New York? Will he be retired? Will he he be released? Will he be somewhere else? Will he be somehow traded? And three is his OPS for the last five years has gone down. Uh, starting six years ago, it went from 1,067 to 965 to 933 to 847 to 823 to 783. That's a pretty impressive thing to accomplish. Yep. Um, and generally, we think that the mean is more powerful than the trend. But uh, I just want to know over or under 783 next year. Uh, I guess I would give him something in the neighborhood of 100 home runs over that time, probably. Um, and I guess if I'm, I guess I'm tempted to say that they won't all be with the Yankees, um, one way or another. I, I have a hard time, I guess, imagining him as a 41 year old, uh, or 42 year old even, um, just being able to contribute enough to, stick on a team that you would expect to be competitive. Um, obviously, no one's going to take him unless he's basically free. Um, but I, I guess I would expect him to be somewhere else that last year. Uh, and over under 783 for next year, um, I guess I would say... I guess I'd say over, but... Um, but I wouldn't expect his playing time to increase. I wouldn't expect him to be any more durable because that's the other thing about him is that not only has he been less productive when he is on the field, he has not been on the field nearly as much over the last few years. So I don't expect that to reverse. Okay, one more. I got one more. Okay. Uh, I Now I'm going to imagine that this is going to turn into a thing this offseason um, and Brian Cashman will have to shoot it down and say it's baseless. But um, what odds do you think there are that they trade him this offseason? Uh, low, I think. Okay. Yeah, I, I doubt it could happen. I don't know. I mean, who would? It would have to be just a, either a massive uh, just eating of a contract or, I mean, you can't even... Usually, with a, a guy with a bad contract, you say, "Well, we'll trade bad contracts," but there, there are no There's contracts like these size, really. Um, well, what would he make as a free agent if he were a free agent this year? Uh, man, you are full of good questions today. Um, 
I guess he would not get more than a two-year deal. And I could see him making... Man. I could see him making, say, eight or nine million. Oh, wow. That's lower. Both of those are lower than I would think. Yeah, I was going to say 10. I don't think I would go over 10, though. Uh-huh. All right. Um, well, let's just briefly talk about Strasbourg, um, which uh, we'll do it briefly because nothing has changed. And um, that's kind of what is interesting and a little bit annoying to me about this new meme of the Nationals without Strasbourg would be uh, winning this, divi- uh, this uh, division series uh, and a unnamed teammate of his uh, claimed that the Nationals would be up two games to none uh, after the second game had Strasburg been um, uh, kept on the roster and available, which is a very weird thing to say because the Nationals had their two aces pitching um, in those two games. It's, yes. I mean, it's conceivable that Strasburg might have started one of those games, but it's not like he was going to replace Zimmerman on the roster. Mm-hmm. And then Edwin Jackson got shelled, but it's not like I don't think – it's possible, but I don't think Strasburg would have replaced Jackson on the roster. We're really, you really can't even play um, the replacement game until game four today with Detweiler. Right, I, today I is the day I would think that would make the difference, unless but, you think that the order of the games matters. Which Jason Wojciechowski <laughs> might, but um, the question, I guess, is um, did, uh, uh, I mean, do you think that the Nationals thought that by announcing this long ago that there was going to at some point be a an acceptance and internalizing of the decision among Washington fans and among baseball followers? Uh, or was it just inevitable that we were going to keep going through this cycle of acting like um, like this decision was just being made today and that um, that – I don't know. Do you know what I'm saying? Do you know yeah. what I'm getting at? I don't. I guess I don't have the greatest gauge of how Washington fans are feeling about this right now because I've read things in the last couple of days that suggest that they're tired of hearing it. Um, I mean, when Ken Rosenthal wrote his latest article about it and he went on that radio show in D.C. and was kind of berated for it, um, and I read a couple things that seemed to suggest that Nationals fans were really not the ones keeping this alive anymore and that it's other people um, who won't let it go. I don't know whether that's accurate, really, because I don't know that many Nationals fans. Um, I mean, I guess it's it's still something I'm interested in. I don't know that I have that much new to say about it, but I still find the decision itself and all the factors surrounding it kind of fascinating. What do you think about the now counter meme that uh, Strasburg was uh, was wearing down, that he uh, probably wouldn't have been an ace anyway? Uh, Verducci wrote in his piece today um, that, well, I just deleted that tab, but that in his last 14 starts he had an ERA of like 3.94 and the Nationals went 7-7 seven and seven in those starts. And so the idea that he was even uh, going to – I mean – Verducci probably was just saying that they you can't just uh, say that they were going to have a Verlander quality pitcher in their rotation. But um, I've seen it seems like uh, quite a few people talking about how uh, Strasburg was was probably not necessarily all that reliable. Um, the counter to that is that in those 14 starts when his ERA was a bit higher, uh, he actually he did still strike out 10 batters per right. nine. He had 
three to one strikeout to walk ratio. He basically had a higher BABIP and was a very good pitcher. Yeah, um, and there wasn't really a decrease in velocity until like his last start, I think. Yeah, his last start was a was a disaster. Before that, he had nine strikeouts and one walk in six shutout innings. Two starts before that, he had ten strikeouts and one walk in six innings with one run. So. Yeah, I mean, I think, is it pretty much, can we agree that Strasburg would have been a better option than Detweiler even now, and that yes. the Nationals' decision is no more uh, interesting than we <laughs> probably already talked about it? Yeah, uh, I would agree on that part. I think, I mean, the only thing, I, I kind of gave them something of a pass earlier, uh, one of the times we talked about it, because I felt like uh, the season had just kind of taken them by surprise. Their, oh yeah, no, you made a you made a great point in your piece today. Did I? You um, did. Oh, oh right. So, <laughs> um, that was a, that seems like a very long time ago. Uh, yeah, I mean, the Nationals were predicting that they would make the playoffs, or at least saying that they expected to make the playoffs, that they'd be disappointed if they didn't make the playoffs. Really, in you know February, really before spring training even got started. Um, and so if they fully expected to be a playoff team, uh, you'd think that they would have thought, well, maybe we would want to have our best pitcher available when we're in the playoffs. Although there is the counter argument to that, that maybe they wouldn't have made it if they had held him out. And, and as it turned out, they only beat the Braves by something like three games, right? Um, so it wasn't like they just, it wasn't a cakewalk, um, if they had held Strasburg out for weeks or something or, or not pitched him as often as they did, maybe they wouldn't have made it or they wouldn't have had the highest seed, certainly. So uh, I don't know. Well, I keep going back and forth. Yeah, Davey Johnson made that prediction that you cited today. Yeah. And it's I, – I mean, we're not in the room. It's hard to say this is all speculation. But it seems entirely possible to me that the Nationals' front office wasn't quite as confident mm -hmm. as Davey Johnson was and that Davey Johnson didn't actually believe that they were going to shut down Strasburg for the postseason. In one of the first podcasts that you and I did, I think I said something along the lines of, you know, there's no way that they're going to go into the postseason without their best pitcher. Um, a they'll lot of figure out a way. That. A lot of and, very... and I'm sure Davey Johnson probably thought that – well, I'm not sure. But it would it – would, makes sense that David jo David Johnson might have also thought that and so it might have just been one of those things where the communication didn't happen and um, and it was I mean even if David Johnson uh, was talking boldly before the season um, you know it's I don't it's hard to it's hard to say that you're ever so sure that you're gonna make the playoffs that you don't want to start your opening day starter on opening day I'm almost rooting for the Nationals to win so that we don't have to hear about this forever because well, they, they have to, yeah, we'll... they have to win the World Series, right? Yeah. If they, even if they lose the World Series in Game Seven, we will hear about this. Yeah, I think unless it were like they got shut out every game and they scored no runs, uh, but their pitchers pitched well and they just lost every game one to nothing. Well, didn't they? Lo didn't they lose? Well, no. What? 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 Kind of is what's happening. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's more or less. Not really scoring. Um, so yeah, maybe. Okay, so they just have to win the world series then that's the only option yeah yeah so uh huh, huh, huh. this is compelling podcast i'm looking for the scores i can't find the scores anyway let's end it okay uh i could use some sleep all right so long